Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Hosea chapter 9. It's good to be back with you. I was glad that Ian was able to be here last week. We had scheduled that a while ago, and then I just happened to be sick that week, so it was really good to see how God that would just work that out. Or we didn't, he didn't have to just throw something together. Somebody else didn't just have to throw something together. He was prepared and ready. So that was pretty cool. Hosea chapter 9. We're going to see Hosea's words, which are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to see God's words. And we're going to see Hosea and God back and forth speaking to Israel. We're going to see some prayers from Hosea to God, requests that he has to God about Israel, some frustrations that Hosea has. But we're going to see again another chapter of judgment and exhortation, another chapter of judgment and exhortation. I want to commend you as a church because week after week, there's been a lot of punches thrown by Hosea. And to preach this rightly, it means that we get convicted and we get punched a little bit spiritually as well, and I was just so encouraged, I've been so encouraged how well that we have received preaching and hearing from a prophetic book, because these have been hard sermons to hear. These aren't just a lot of fun sermons to hear, they're challenging, and they're, um, sometimes they're hard-hitting, and so I'm thankful how well you guys have responded, and honestly, I wouldn't expect anything less from you. It's just neat to see God at work and people wanting to hear from God. And that's what God has continued to collect around here is a group of people that really want to hear from God and we want to obey Him. So I'm so thankful for you. But this is another chapter that should have jolted Israel into reality. This is the ice bath. It's the smack in the face. It's the jumping into freezing cold water. It's something that should have shocked them into reality. It's ripping duct tape off a hairy leg kind of chapter. You know what I mean? Uh, ladies, if you've got uh, you know, the eyebrows done or, or whatever done before, you rip that thing off. There's funny videos on the internet of, of men where their wives will put that stuff and, and they'll say, here's what we deal with. And then, you know, and some of you men have gone through the torture of your wife saying, I'm going to pluck your eyebrows. And then after quick prayers for power, you let her do it. And then you realize it's, it's difficult to be a woman. And uh, <clears throat> now I've just heard stories from other men who have let their wives do that. I mean, this isn't me, but she says I get a unibrow and I think I do. So, <clears throat> but it's like God is doing something here. It's, it's the proverbial slap in the face, the loud alarm at 4 a.m. How's Israel going to respond? Will they wake up? Will they come to? Will it be the smelling salts that they need? Goodness gracious. Or will it be a strange thing? Will it be a strange thing to them? So we're going to take a look. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 4. Rejoice not, O Israel. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved prostitutes' wages on on the threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, And the new wine vat shall not fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. And they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. 
It shall be like the mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Hosea opens this charge to Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and specifically even addressing Ephraim again. And he tells them to not rejoice. Do not rejoice like the peoples. The peoples outside of Israel, are living the good life, eating, drinking, and being merry, living for pleasure. And Hosea says, this is not a day of exalting. Do not exalt like the peoples. Israel, you better not do what they're doing. You better not live that way. Why? And we go back to the original language within the book of Hosea. Why? Because they have played the whore. Don't rejoice. When you play the whore, when you should be the faithful one, you should not be rejoicing. They have forsaken God. Verse 2 says that the work on the threshing floor and the wine vat is not going to work. Verse 3 says that you're going to go back to slavery and you're going to be dependent upon Assyria. In these first four verses, we get more judgment coming to Israel like we've heard time and time again. It's wave after wave of judgment. And it keeps coming. It's like this relentless judgment that's coming to Israel. And often you get relentless wave after wave of God's love and His mercy and His grace. And in the prophetic books, you get wave after wave of judgment. And then you get pointers. You get uh, the curtain will come back. And you'll see the love of God. It's present there. But we have to see God's love and warnings as well. God was kind and gracious to be so long-suffering with them. But He tells them, again, that they're not going to work in their work. It's their work is just not going to work. The, fleshing, the threshing floor is not going to produce. The wine vat is not going to work. And they're going to go back to Egypt, or, which would be slavery, and they're going to depend, be dependent upon other nations. It goes on to say their sacrifices are not going to work. God's not going to accept their offerings. Your bread is going to be for food only, your belly only. In verse 4 it says, for their bread shall be for their hunger only, and it shall not come to the house of the Lord. Don't rejoice. Your work is going to be in vain. You're going to have to go back into bondage, and you're going to have to have help from Assyria. This is the ice bath. It's the smack in the face. It's the wake-up call. And Israel eventually is going to have to look at their corruption. They're going to have to see it. And at some point, you can be so blinded by sin that you don't see it, and then there comes a day, and this is, you know, on a micro scale level, we see this even in our own lives. There comes a day where you realize, my goodness, how have, been, how have I been living like this? How have I been doing this and not realizing it all these years? And they, in their blindness, didn't see their sin, or they saw it and ignored it. But at some point, they're going to have to look at their corruption. Look at verse nine or 5. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feasts of the Lord? For behold, they're going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall produce or possess and possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of God. They have corrupted themselves in the as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sin. 
Instead of worship, instead of worship, which would be the appointed festivals and the days of feasting from the Lord, instead of that, they're going to look on their destruction. Instead of proper worship, Egypt, Memphis, and Nettles is going to have their way with Israel. Why? Because worship, proper worship, is going to be replaced with punishment. Recompense is here. Judgment is here. This is what we've been seeing over and over again in the book is warning of judgment. Judgment is coming. And in verse 7, there's finally going to be a day when Israel recognizes it. The days of punishment have come and the days of recompense have come. And Israel shall know it. They're going to know it. How are they going to know that judgment has come? How are they going to know the days of recompense has come? Well, there's going to be some indicators. When these things are happening, that's going to be listed here, Israel's going to know the days of judgment are upon us. Look, they look at the prophet and they think he's a fool. The second part of verse 7. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and your great hatred. How is Israel going to know that they're under judgment or recompense? Well, they're going to look at the prophet and consider him a fool or the man of the spirit as being a madman. They're going to see and despise the things of God. What should be happening is they're thinking about this. They should be recognizing this is what we feel about Hosea. Okay, so, so maybe we're in this moment right now. <coughs> Verse 8. They see the prophet doing the work of God, and instead of honoring him, turning to the Lord in repentance, in verse 8 we find that they're like a fowler looking for prey. Look at this. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God. So the prophet's doing a good thing, a watchman, and yet the fowler, which would be the people, they're snaring the prophet in all his ways, and they're hating the house of his God. This is what Israel has become. Instead of hearing the prophet speak... And saying, instead of responding to the words, thus saith the Lord, and responding in sackcloth and ashes, obeying quickly, instead of doing that, they're looking to trap the prophet. This is also seen in the book of Jeremiah, where God's people say, we're going to do whatever you tell us to do, Jeremiah. Whatever God says through you, that's what we're going to do. And then Jeremiah tells them the word of the Lord, and they respond to him, we're not going to do that. And they throw him into a pit. And so they go immediately back on their word. This is, this is the people of God still in Hosea's day. They see the prophet doing the work of the Lord, and instead of following that prophet and obeying that prophet, they set the fowler's trap. Israel is deeply, deeply corrupt. You know, like I said, when they hear this, they should be saying, well, that does sound a lot like us right now. They should be looking at what they're doing and recognizing, looking at their corruption, and they should be repenting. This is what wake-up calls are intended to do. This is what smelling salts are intended to do, to wake somebody up. The problem with Israel is that the smelling salts of God's Word are continuing to come to them, and they're continuing to stay asleep. They're not hearing the alarm. They're not listening to the prophet. There's a dullness to their ears and to their heart. There's a callousness that's there. That the prophet can speak and the people just shut it down. And God's going to remember that at verse 9. It's very similar to verse 13. There's sacrifices of meat and eat. This is in chapter 8. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, representative of slavery. And then we see chapter 9, verse 9. 
They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Punishment is coming. Again, theme repeated over and over again. God's going to remember that. And so God now is going to speak. Hosea has been primarily the one addressing his people and telling the words of God through this prophet. And now God's going to directly, directly speak. And we see that in verse 10. Starting in verse 10, we see this down through verse 13. Read along with me. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your feathers, your fathers. But they came to Baal and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in the meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. The back half of chapter 9 is a chapter that's one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible because we're told some things that God does that we would like to think He doesn't do. In fact, the skeptic, people like Richard Dawkins, or if you're familiar with the conversation, those who would be called new atheists, like to look at the Scriptures and they like to pronounce judgment upon God. In fact, this has been in the history of the world, a, a play of the atheist is to say, God is either all-powerful or He's not God, he's, he, he, or God doesn't exist because evil's in the world, and therefore if evil and suffering in the world, God is either ambivalent towards it or powerless to stop it, one of the two. So the, the conclusion that many atheists come to as they look at the suffering of the world is that God doesn't exist, or if He does exist, many of the agnostics would say, if He does exist, He's evil because He doesn't stop what He's, what he's capable of stopping. And so people look at passages like we're we're bumping into and edging into and they want to judge God for verses like this. And I'm going to warn us against that. As God speaks, he says several things, but he said that I found you, speaking of his finding of Israel. We see that God is always the pursuer. He chose Israel. Israel didn't find their way to God, but God came to Israel. We see this already in Genesis chapter 12 with God's choosing of Abraham. But instead of honoring and obeying him down through the history... They loved Baal instead of loving God. And they became detestable like the thing they loved. Look at that in verse 10. They became detestable like the thing they loved. They became detestable. If you love false gods, if you love detestable things, you end up becoming a detestable person. You are what you love. This has transforming power. Andy brought this up in our last home group or small group. If you love evil things, you end up, end up becoming more and more evil. They have influence on you and over you. <clears throat> sin is a trap. As lies lead to more lies, sin leads to more sin. And it leads to greater and greater deception. That's why when men or women struggle with pornography, pornography typically gets more and more vile over the years. And you've got to stop it. Sin leads to more sin, which leads to more sin. Israel detested, became detestable because they loved detestable things. In verse 11, we find that glory is going to depart from Ephraim. There's glory to the people of God, but that glory will depart. And if they love false gods and continue to do so, 
glory will depart, verse 11. And then we get into some difficult things. We hear that generations will be done. Now, what we see in the Old Testament, even into the New, is the promise that there's going to be generational consequences. Now, each person is responsible for their own sin generationally. I'm not responsible for the sins of my father's father, or do I receive any benefit? I do receive benefit, but I don't become saved or a Christian because of the actions of my father. However, you see this, even naturally, down through family lineages, you will see consequences of sins go down generation by generation. Thank you very much. There we go. See, Pastor Adam, that's very kind. Thank you. You see generational consequences. Now, I'm not responsible. However, the sins that I commit will have consequences in my family. They will inevitably have consequences in my family. As I walk obedient, obedient, obediently to the Lord, also, what a tremendous grace that is to my family. A man who is willing to walk obediently to the Lord, the effects of that are felt in the family for generations to come. Ladies, that's the same for you. If you will walk obediently with the Lord, you're, by what God is doing in you, there are consequences and ripple effects in your life generationally. Here, the effects of their sins, we find, are going to affect the generations. Whereas the promise of God's faithfulness went from one generation to the next in His kindness, here the judgment of God is going to come down on the generations. Glory is going to depart, but even judgment is going to look like no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. If there's no future generations... In Israel, that's going to be a problem for Israel. Is it not? It would be a problem. And Ephraim is going to end up leading, leading their children out to slaughter. That's what it says. They're going to lead their children out to slaughter. Verse 13. When glory departs, people send their children to the wolves. Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter as a way of judgment. And this is Ephraim doing that leading. Their generations are going to be done. There goes the glory because there are no generations to carry it on. There is no future in their generations. And Ephraim is going to do this for their children. We've got to step out of a matrix for a second here today. And uh, I'm going to possibly sound legalistic for a second, but I think it's for a good reason. Some of you, most of you, I think in this room will like this. But we've got to step out of the matrix for a second and we've got to feel the boiling water that's gone down into our bones, and we've got to jump out of it. Um, friends, glory departs from a people and the people of God when God's people want their children to fit in with the world. Um, there is an idolatry of of families down through the decades and generations down through the decades, there's an idolatry of, of wanting our kids to fit in and to be at the cool table or at least not be the socially awkward one. We just have to have our kids fit in. We, we, don't, want, we, don't, want to, we don't want them to be the weird kids. Um, and American Christians, specifically speaking of the visible church, have been willing to give our kids away for decades leading our kids to slaughter. 
Somehow or another, sheltering your children has become an evil thing. Just think about that for a second. How many people in here have heard the phrase, well, you don't want to shelter your kids? Let's get real vulnerable here. Who said that before? You don't want to shelter your kids. You know, I've said that in my life before. And then you start to step back, and it's like, well, do you want your kids to not be sheltered? You just want them out in the cold on their own? Like, even the metaphor, the illustration is like, you mean you don't want your kids to be sheltered? Well, that's, that's terrible parenting. You should want to shelter your kids. That's what parents are supposed to do, is protect their children. We don't lead them to the slaughter. That's an evidence of God's judgment when parents don't protect their children. And American Christians have been doing that for decades. There's no future there. And here's a big news flash for all of us. A news flash I wish that every Christian could hear and every Christian parent all across this land and world. We do not want our kids to fit in with a non-Christian kid culture. We don't want them to fit in. We shouldn't care if they're socially awkward. They know how the kingdom of God works. It's others who are socially awkward when it comes to knowing the ways of the kingdom. Our kids are living in the kingdom of God. It's everybody else that's socially awkward. We're setting the pace for the world, not taking our cues for the world, from the world. There's a different kind of normal that we exist in here. And it's the real normal. It's the kingdom of God. And we've been giving kids to government schools. And the government schools have been winning for decades. The numbers do not lie. Can you find children that have been missionaries? Can you find children that have come out unscathed? Yes. But the numbers do not lie. If you give your kids, as Vodi Bakum says, as if you give your kids to Caesar, don't be surprised when they come out Romans. We cannot give our kids to the enemy when they are untrained and unready and tell them to be warriors against the devil and the world. We have trouble doing that. We have to shelter our kids. We have to do whatever we can to train them up. We wonder as we give our kids away, why are our people becoming Marxists and atheists and confused about gender? It's because we're putting them there. Are there some good teachers that love Jesus? Absolutely. Are there better schools and worse schools? Absolutely. But we cannot outsource education to the government and then be surprised when we get government kids just standing in line with whatever they say, saluting the government. And I'm telling you, it's worse than ever now. Why are public schools training kids with consent? Because there is a long game to get consent to a lower and lower age. That's not conspiracy. That is a reality. We have to wake up. The enemy has a long game. And he who has the kids owns the future. There is a war. It's been going on for a long time. And Christians across this land have to wake up and say, no more. We will shelter our kids. We will protect our kids. We will not lead our children out to slaughter. There's a catechesis going on. There's evangelism going on. And for those who say nobody should proselytize, secularists are the, the strongest proselytizers we have. So we're atheists and agnostics. 
They will not let you just raise your kids in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. They're at war with you. There is no such thing as neutral education. And the idea is that, well, government schools are not teaching religion. They're religiously neutral. That's not true. They are full of secularists and atheists atheists who are very religious. They want to catechize. They want to train. They want to control. And they want to own the future. And it's easy to stand back and say, that sounds legalistic. And I'm willing to risk that for the children's sake. I mean, this is normal. The way we exist as Christian family, this is normal. This is how life works. Out there, they need to see something different in here. They need to see something different in our homes. And if we just try to look the exact same as them and then throw a little Jesus along the way, that's not, a, that's not a different existence. And so I'm fully okay with them thinking, well, your family's a little different or weird. I don't care. Fine. We're normal and we're living in the kingdom. And so come join the team. Verse 11 and 12 and 13 are all verses that's telling Israel of his judgment and it has to do with their future generations. We have got to be wise, and we should not be so foolish (coughs) to give our future generations away. We just can't. Verse 14, Hosea speaks, and then we get back to the word of the Lord, although this is the word of the Lord as well. Verse 14, give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. We're going to get into some heavy stuff here, and uh, it's heavy. It just is. Hosea speaks, and we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us if this is a good prayer from Hosea or not, but this is Hosea's prayer, and it's honest. It's tell us, telling us what Hosea prays, and Hosea has been witnessing the unfaithfulness of Israel. He's witnessed it. He's lived in it. He's tried to tell them to return to the Lord, to repent, to bow a knee, to get back to proper worship. And instead, they're leading their children to judgment. And so he prays. It was honest. It's how the prophet felt. And he prays that they would not have the ability to carry on. He prays that God would give them miscarrying wombs and that God would strike them at what is the most precious thing which is the children. And then in verse 15 and 16, we get some alarming words again. Hang with me, okay? We don't want to look at God's word ever and judge it. We want to receive everything from God and say, okay, I may not understand, but I trust you, Lord. Look at verse 15. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit, even though they give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. 
God can do whatever he wants to do. His judgments are always just and right. Gilgal is the place God's people camped after coming through the Jordan on dry, dry ground into the promised land. It was a long time before. But we're there, we're told that there, God's hatred of these evildoers that were in the camp, it started. There were those in God's people, the complainers, those that did not have faith in the coming Messiah, that were God's people in name only. God started to hate them all the way back then, and God will drive them out. And we're told, this is God's words, verse 17 is back to Hosea, but this is God speaking in verse 16, I will put their beloved children to death. This is God saying, I will put their beloved children to death. And instead of enjoying the promises of God from one generation to the next, instead of seeing your generations know and walk with the Lord, instead of seeing them cherish and relish the faithfulness of God in history, instead, God's going to put their children to death. God says that He is even willing to strike them where it hurts the most. Okay, this is a passage, God saying this. It's like the book of Joshua. This is where people go and say, look, God's mean, he's evil, he's not just. Look at this. God says, I'll put their children to death. So we have a couple options before us. Number one, we can judge God. We can sit on our throne. This is certainly the route of a lot of people to this day, right now. We can sit on the throne and we can... Hear God say things like that, and we can judge him. Or Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, Who has made man blind, deaf, or dumb? Is it not I, the Lord? And we can look at him slaughter 31 kings in the book of Joshua, setting aside even the women and children for destruction. And we can act like or whitewash that, act like it didn't happen, and act like, well, they just thought God was doing that, but God really wasn't doing that. Or we can say, no, God really did that. And he was just in doing that. And uh, there's some ins and outs of that that I don't fully understand. But no, God's ways are perfect and I'm not going to judge him. And so I want to encourage us when we read passages like this. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. I will give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts is his prayer. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. Um... It's easy to kind of step back and say, please, Jared, let's just move on. This is too much to bear. I don't know what these implications are for today. Are there implications for today? And that skeptic looks and says, see, you know, look how God, how mean God is. If he exists, look how bad he is. And there are some Christians to this day as they're reading their Bible reading through the year. You read stuff like that. And you just, it's just too much to bear. You're like, I don't know. I don't like God saying stuff like that. So we need to know how to respond. We need to be shepherded. We need to to be helped with passages like this. Is God just maniacal and just saying, fine, all Israel, I'm going to put your children to death? And is is God wrong to do that? Or somehow is this justice? So we must respond. And, And there's a way to respond to easy passages. Easy passages we come and bump into and we're like, yes, this is great. First John, God is love. Yes, God is love. That's easy to swallow. 
Yes, God is love. We like it. Or when we hear God give us promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes. And then we hear him say, I'm going to put their children to death. And it's like, ooh. Um, so here's how we respond. It's a reality check. We must judge rightly. God is not bad. People are. And we have to trust the Lord. And just like with those good passages, just like the promises passages, when we bump into something like this, we must say, God, we trust you. This is right. You're right. And if, God, you do this, you're right in your judgments. So let's get a reality check, okay? Hear this. God is not bad. People are. And there are many people throughout this world, their starting point is that humans are innocent and we deserve the next breath that we get. Therefore, if we don't have it, God is going to be judged for not giving it to us. Take it a step further. Every human being deserves to have all their dreams come to fruition and have nothing bad come to them because we deserve that. If God doesn't give it, God's wrong. If I don't get what I want, God's wrong. The starting point of billions of people is human innocence. And what we deserve from God with that frame of thinking, with that worldview, is that God should give us everything on a silver platter. Still, even in the Christian faith, many of us think when bad things happen, that we are to judge God. But here's the truth. Verses like this give us insight to where all mankind is going from birth toward eternity. It gives us insight of what, what we deserve apart from the grace of God in this moment. You see, I will put their children to death. Do you realize that's what everyone deserves when we understand human sinfulness, death, we all deserve that. We all deserve God's judgment. And when we get another breath, that's God's grace. That is his mercy. That's beyond what we deserve. We deserve all humans, every human being, to not even be born, to not be able to experience the colors we get to see the beauty that we get to see, rivers and oceans, smiling families, good food, all gifts from God. Lest God intervene, everyone is marching our way towards this death. God does not have to let anyone live, even children. God does not have to let anyone live, even children. And yet, that default that so many have is that mankind deserves the breath that we take. We deserve that happy and healthy and long life. I want to reframe what most people think when they hear a verse like this. When we hear God say, I will put their beloved children to death. Instead of being shocked by that, here's what I want us to be more shocked by. I will let children live. And I will let people breathe another breath. And I will let people who rebel against me live to see another day. And instead of being shocked or instead of turning to God in judgment, that there are verses like this. <coughs> we turn to God and we say, God, thank you that you would let people live. I am shocked that you would let anyone live. Man, woman, or child throughout this world, all across this world, there are billions of people today that are dependent upon you for their next breath. And God, you continue to give it. 
I cannot believe that you would let so many people live who are rebelling against you. Because he doesn't owe that to us. He doesn't owe us to experience anything. He doesn't owe us consciousness. Death is a matter of time and everyone dies at God's timing. And we're all at the mercy of God for every single second that he gives us. And if we hover over the sinfulness of mankind long enough, if we look at passages like this long enough, if we don't turn away, we can find some real gold there. You know, um, gold miners... I love, I used to watch Gold Rush. I still like Gold Rush Alaska where the guys go up, you know, Parker, young Parker. It's like, man, that guy's got some resolve. He's kind of a jerk, but he's got some resolve for only being 19 or 20 years old or probably 21 or two now. And uh, gold miners, they get this fine dust gold out of the dirt. You think when you go gold mining, you walk out into the river and you find these big chunks of gold just laying there. And that's not how it works. I mean, gold mining, is, it's always been tough. But you have to be persistent. You have to dig. And if you just give up when you don't see gold lying around on the riverbed, you don't find gold. I mean, is there an occasional nugget that you'll find that people found that prospectors found? Well, certainly there is the occasional nugget of gold that people would find. But when it comes to the scriptures, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to mine a little bit and we see gold. We see treasures. We find beauty that's there that we didn't see at first. It just felt like dirt. It felt like fool's gold. It didn't even feel like fool's gold. There was nothing to get us excited. We think about a womb being, a miscarrying womb and dry breasts and putting children to death as judgment for their unfaithfulness. We think, where's the gold? So there's so many people that just throw the shovel away. They just stop digging. They don't, they don't look anymore. I, I just I can't handle it. But we have to see verses like this, and we have to get a laser vision towards the cross. One commentator said this as I was reading. It was very helpful. The children belong to him, God. And he would go to any length to prevent their consecration to the gods of Canaan. Those children belong to the Lord. He would go to any length to prevent their consecration to the gods of Canaan. As blood chilling as this passage is. I love when commentators are honest. Blood chilling. God's going to put their children to death. Imagine being the original audience hearing that. We, we don't have to be in, fearful, in fear of that at all in this room. In the same way, in any way whatsoever. But imagine being that original audience. Judgment for our unfaithfulness is going to lead to the end of our generations. So they're hearing this. As blood-chilling as this passage is, it serves, perhaps, as forcefully as any in Scripture to remind us of the zeal with which the Lord hates sin and the length to which He will go to purge His people of it. Amen. After all, listen to this. This is where we dig. Listen to this. After all, He did not even spare His own Son when our sin had to be judged for our forgiveness to be achieved. Yes, he's willing, because he hates sin, for death to come to children. To preserve them, to protect them from the idolatry that their fathers were walking in. To bring those children to himself, 
But also, we see that God is willing to give His own Son up because He hates sin that much. Israel should have trusted in Yahweh. They should have listened to the prophets. Before we were Christians, we should not have waited so long. We should have listened to the warnings that came our way. Judgment is coming to all who do not know Christ. And as surely as God is willing to bring death as a judgment for sin, He sent Jesus Christ to die in the place of real sinners. I was adulterous as Israel was. We've looked at this. We were all Gomer. We were the sinful ones. We have done the exact same thing as Israel did. This is just a metaphor. It's it's a reality of Israel, but it's a metaphor that serves its purpose for every single person that's ever lived who's walked in rebellion against God. Why in the world, in light of God's justice and His hatred of sin, would God send Jesus to rescue anybody? Why wouldn't the fate of Israel and their children be the fate of everyone? Why would God do anything but judge the world from the fall forward? When Adam took of the fruit, when Adam and Eve walked in rebellion in the garden, why didn't God just wash his hands and say, that's it? God is merciful. The questions that we have as we bring our judgments to God fall in light of the holiness of God, in light of His goodness. Why would He save me and why would He bless my generations rather than ending my generations? We were as adulterous as they. Why in the world would God send Jesus to rescue us, to rescue me? I expect to see God's faithfulness in the lives of my children and grandchildren. Um... You know, some people in here, in, in, in thinking about multiple generations, and I've, in light of, of uh, Zach and Cheyenne and, and Zach recently becoming Presbyterian, re-looked at a lot of things, and one of the things that's been so good for me to recover it, it, in the last few years has been this idea of, of generational faithfulness of the Lord. We're not Presbyterian, but we believe in God's generational faithfulness. We believe that God is going to work in the lives of our children, and it's God's grace that He gave our children to us and not to somebody else. Do you realize that your children are in your home and your grandchildren are in your family and your nieces or nephews, whoever you find in your life, your spiritual children that you have at your local church, the grace of God to place them there? It's God's grace to have your children in a home or in a family that loves Jesus. That's God's doing. And we should expect to see Our children and grandchildren walk with the Lord and not stop praying for that till the day we die. For all those who are found saved by Jesus, here's the truth. We don't ever have to face the wrath and the judgment that God is telling Israel about. When we see this judgment that's going to be coming upon Israel, these proclamations of judgment of, of God to Israel... For those who are in the room here that are in Christ Jesus, we have to understand that we will never face the judgment of God in this way. We will never see God's wrath because God's wrath in Christ Jesus has been finally and fully done away with for you. That there's no wrath, there's no judgment coming your way. And even though judgment by way of death, by God's wrath, it was promised upon Israel... In God's mercy, Jesus even came to die for the Jews as well. 
death promised to them, death upon their children, judgment to them. And yet Jesus would come and taste death even for those in Israel who would have faith in him. He would come and take the judgment that was pronounced upon them that their generations, instead of being blessed, would be cursed. And we get to enjoy God's grace and even expect that He's going to work in the lives of our children and grandchildren. I plan on seeing my kids and grandkids walk with Jesus. Every single one of them. And of course, I can't determine that. Of course, there's a possibility that some of our kids and grandkids won't, but I'll be shocked by that. I'm going to pray and expect to see God work in the lives of our children. Verse 17, back to Hosea, we find, unfortunately, they did not listen. They just continued to not listen. There was a callousness that came upon them. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. They did not listen to God. But who did listen to God? This is the hope for Israel today. They didn't listen to God. There were wanderers in the desert. Who went to the desert? Who was a wanderer on their behalf? Who listened to God the Father on behalf of rebellious Israel? What did Jesus come to do? Well, Jesus came to do the will of his Father. They didn't listen, but Jesus came to listen. John 5, 19 says this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus came to do what rebellious Israel failed to do. And we see their failure so clear in the book of Hosea. We see their failure so clear all throughout the Old Testament. What did Jesus come to do? He came to do what they failed to do. He came to do what you failed to do, which was obey a holy God. Jesus only did what he saw his father doing, and there was a remnant in Israel that looked forward to that day and believed, like Hosea. There was a remnant like Hosea who looked forward to believe the promises of God, and that Israel would not be rejected. Hosea would not be rejected. But unfortunately, most in Israel did not listen. Sadly, listen to this, 70% of all Americans claim to be Christians. And they and their children will die in their sins. And they will experience the wrath of God in hell. For us, let's not make the mistakes that ancient Israel did. Let's not walk in sin. The visible church today is warned that it's so similar to Israel of old. Many so-called children today, so-called Christians today, have no problem calling themselves a Christian and then living in accordance with the wave of popular opinion. So many so-called Christians today have no problem with sacrificing their children to the enemy or living as if their children is a burden. Like Israel of old, the visible church, the visible church will be judged. And many who name the name of Christ will experience the wrath of God because of their adultery. You are not right with God. The church in America, the 70% are not right with God because they claim to be God's people. They actually have to know Him. They have to be born again. And the only hope for this world, not just for ancient Israel, but this world today, the only hope is that they would re repent of their sins, turn to Christ, and live. Let's pray.